Welcome back to another episode of Stimulate Your Mind, proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. Welcome back, everyone. We're back here with Jay Therapel, and Jay's work can be found on the orientaldespot.com. That's right. So last time we had Jay on the podcast, we spoke about the Yemen conflict and whether it was a conflict or a humanitarian crisis. Today, we're looking at another conflict. Unfortunately, there's too many going on in the world right now, and they must be looked into. So today we're looking more into the Syrian conflict. So Jay, thank you very much for joining us again. I just want you to give us a bit of a background on the Syrian conflict. How did it originate and why? The war in Syria fundamentally is driven by the attempt to overthrow the state, not the state resisting those attempts. And those attempts on the ground have been dominated by Al-Qaeda and Islamic State and other similar such organizations, namely Ahrar al-Sham, Jaysh al-Islam, although they're more nationally focused. And these groups uh, have the backing, um, either covertly or overtly, of Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the United States, Britain, um, and by extension, the European Union and NATO. Uh, And this is what's driving the conflict. Is this a conflict, can it be explained as a sectarian conflict, or is it more outside powers looking to be involved in Syria? It can be seen as a sectarian conflict in in the sense that uh, if you treat a sect as a geopolitical marker and identifier, then yes, I mean, uh, Iranian interests uh, will be expressed in terms of Shia Islamic ideology. And what's new, I think, is that Turkey is relatively new over the past 20 years. Turkey has taken on a more Islamic identity for itself. Neo-Ottomanism is what Mm. it's called. And it's rejected the, the old secular Turkish nationalist um, ideology that they used to have. And on top of that, we know that Saudi Arabia uh, represents Wahhabism in the region. Um, and so when you put those multiple factors together, you realize, yeah, there is like obviously a sectarian angle in terms of the geopolitics, in terms of the broader affiliations. But in terms of Syrian society, which I think is very important and often missed, um, the defections from the Syrian army, which were, uh, which is what the, the so-called Syrian revolution was hoping for, were actually very, very small. Mm. And if you look at the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is an anti-Syrian government source, even according to them, something like 49 to 70% of the dead among the insurgency, that is the forces waging war against the Syrian state, have been foreigners, which suggests that the, the Sunni rebellion that they were hoping for didn't happen. Indeed, the majority of the Syrian army is Sunni. So within Syria, I think you see a lot more pluralistic, multi-faith cooperation to defend their country. So it's basically more of a national resistance rather yeah, than a, yeah. a Shia or Sunni or Christian or whatever faith they follow resistance. Look, I think Syria does not get enough credit. Um, I know that sounds... Uh, like a difficult claim to make given all of the propaganda that's been thrown at Syria, but this is a country that prior to the war um, had among the highest life expectancies in the Arab world. It had free health care. It had uh, free education. It was a welfare state. Mm. It was, uh, I mean, obviously, obviously every country's got problems, right? But dwelling on those problems to the extent that you ignore the social successes of the Syrian government um, I think is wrong. And when it came to the relationship between the, the different um, sect groups in Syria, I think uh, it, it, the Syrian, the, the Ba'ath Party presided over an era of, 
of of peace, stability, and harmony that was that historically wasn't there, especially for minorities. So, do you think that the the success of the Syrian government prior the conflict was the reason that these countries came in and used the same like reason or agenda in that we want to bring in democracy into the nation, or was it more that we want to come and take your resources and take over you? I think we can identify multiple um, uh, interests driving the the war against Syria. So, like that's the fundamental assumption that this war is being driven by the attempt to overthrow the Syrian state, not the Syrian state resisting those attempts. Yeah. Very important premise. And if anyone can challenge that premise, please come and talk to me. But and ask me anything, of course. But um, so if we look at the attempt to overthrow the Syrian state and who's driving it. Um, the United States, uh, I would argue, ever since the 1970s has been driven by these attempts to uphold its own hegemony. Yep. What does this mean? I mean, ever since, the 19, ever since 1971, when the United States went off the gold standard, it's had to back its currency with something, which is when, in 1975, 76, it created a, a deal with the OPEC states to price oil in dollars, and this would create an artificial demand for US dollars. Um, but over time, this has started to degenerate. So to give you some uh, an example of this from my research, back in 1980, 55% of total of all of the capital that was exported in the world, so if you take like net capital exports, yeah. 55% of all the capital that was exported in the world was exported by the United States. Now it's 55% in the other way, in the other direction. The United States... Um, imports 55% of the world's capital. What does that mean? The United States relies on loans from the rest of the world to keep its economy going. I remember I was, I was listening to um, a, a former IMF economist, and he now works for the Brookings Institute. His name's Iswar Prasad. And he basically said that, that instability around the world creates this rush to hold US dollars. Now, he didn't imply anything malicious by it, but think about that. If you, if you create instability in other parts of the world, it causes the US dollar to strengthen, mm. right? And he referred to the, the, the fact that many countries had to buy US dollars or, or sought refuge in the US dollar as them buying protection money. Now, protection money, for anyone who doesn't know, mm. is a euphemism for extortion, especially mm. when you're dealing with organized crime and talking about their activities. Uh, with this, uh, let's look at that extortion that the yeah. United States is using. We'll get to the other countries as well, but we'll yep. get to the extortion. Definitely. So uh, earlier you mentioned the, the few countries that are involved, either the United States, some Gulf states, UK or Britain. And last time we spoke about the Yemen conflict, you mentioned the same nations. Mm-hmm. So it feels like this is a recurring theme. Is this uh, what the United States is hoping to achieve in extorting these, these, these poorer nations like Yemen and Syria to build their own economy and like you said it depends on people taking loans from them yeah it's also it's about the region more so than than just um uh hitting syria although that certainly helps so the united states uh ever since it established its hegemony after 1944 at the Bretton woods conference um, it's had this geo strategy and the general geo strategy is that they have to contain eurasia Because they have this theory which says the world is divided fundamentally into two geographic zones. You've got the heartland, which is basically Russia, but also China. And then you've got the rimland, which is all of the territories that surround the heartland. 
And so the soft underbelly of the heartland is the Middle East. Middle East. Um, the United States was e ejected from the eastern part of the Eurasian heartland when they lost the wars in Vietnam. North Korea put up a good fight, so that ended in a bloody stalemate. And they're being politically outmaneuvered in the, in the Korean context. And so the Middle East becomes a very important region of contestation, right? So one, you've got the oil-producing states that pump out oil in exchange for US dollars. That's very important. Two, you've got uh, a counter-hegemonic power like Iran, which wants to become a nuclear power, okay? Now, from the American perspective, what does this mean? If Iran develops nuclear energy, it's going to free up a lot of their oil for export to the rest of the world. And Israel is, is afraid of that because it means that Iran will have a much larger budget to support the Palestinians in their struggle in their in their in their just struggle so on top of that you've also got uh, got the fact that um that yeah i think i already mentioned that the us us dollar has been in in, in decline for a while yeah. now and so imagine a situation in, in which the united states didn't intervene in eurasia what would happen the eurasian powers so the eurozone russia china these countries would start to economically integrate with each other they build they build infrastructure they build railways uh, they cooperate on telecommunications iran would start selling more oil uh, to china and russia in their own currencies which is happening by the way so essentially the us is afraid of an alliance between these yeah, these, these yeah, countries yeah they talk about it zbigniew brzezinski who is one of the very important um, geostrategic thinkers for the United States. He wrote a book called The Grand Chessboard in which he said, we have to prevent the emergence of an anti-hegemonic coalition. And he specifically mentioned Russia, China, and Iran. So is this part of the, the US agenda, that we have to break up all these connections between these nations like Russia, China, Iran, and work with Israel, work with the Gulf nations that we have under our wing yeah. to destroy this alliance that might be growing? Yeah, yeah. And if you want to look at Israel, I mean, it's just so blatant. Um, back in 1982, there's a document. It's called uh, the Oded uh, Yanon document. Um, and this document, it's very interesting. It says, the dissolution of Syria and Iraq into ethnically or religiously unique areas is Israel's primary target. Syria will fall apart in accordance with its ethnic and religious structure. There will be a Shia Alawi state a Sunni state in Aleppo, another Sunni state in Damascus, which is hostile to its northern neighbor, so Sunni versus Sunni. That's what they were planning originally. And the Druze, who will set up a state maybe even in our Golan, so they, they totally wanted to divide up Syria back in 1982. So they had this, this plan. Was it, had it started in 1982 or was this a goal for the future? And like this is what we want to achieve and it's going to take us a few years, but we're going to work closely with countries like the US? Yeah, well, I think it takes a lot of convincing. So it's like the Israelis have expanded their influence within the US government since 1982. So it's, sometimes it's difficult to know where the agency is coming from. So there are some people in the United States who believe that the United States is purely being used by Israel to fight its wars. I don't fully agree. I think there's overlapping agency because a lot of Israelis also have dual passports. So they're Americans as well. Yeah. So... You know, whose agency is dominant here? Is it the United States or is it Israel? The traditional view on the left is that the United States controls Israel and the United States 
and Israel as subordinates of the United States. But the view among uh, the right and a lot of the dissident right in the United States is the other way around, yep. that you know they're being taken for a ride, that they're being uh, you know, told to, to fight and die for Israel and Israel's interests only. So you, you mentioned dual citizenships yeah. for Israelis. They have American and Israeli passports. Is that, um, is that because of the, the Zionist movement that originated in America? Or is it because they, they had lived in Israel and moved into America to begin their influence there? I just think it's because Israel is a, is a nation of people who fly often. You know? mm. So they might spend some time in Israel and they go to the United States. To become a citizen of Israel, you just have to be Jewish. That's it. You, have, you don't need any historic connection to that land. All you have to say is, I mean, you know, the, the, all you have to say is my, uh, I'm, I'm Jewish and therefore the assumption is your ancestors or at least a percentage of your ancestors lived there 2,000 years ago. So if you look at, I know we're going off topic a bit, but I yeah. think it, it's very related sure, to sure, the Syrian conflict. Topic. Best conversations happen that way. So you, you mentioned earlier that the Palestinian struggle is a just struggle. Yeah. Is that because of the colonization and the annexation of the, of the Palestinian lands? by Israel, or is it to do more with a religious, religious struggle? No, it's got nothing to do with religion for me. I think that, I think that it's universal that anyone in the world, um, if they saw a large influx of, of refugees, immigrants coming to their country, um, okay, that might piss them off. But if those refugees then within the space of a few years decide to carve out a separate state, and carve it off from the rest of the region. Because, I mean, what is Palestine? Palestine is inextricably connected to the rest of the Arabic-speaking region, specifically in the Levant. So people in Syria have a historic memory. People in Lebanon, Jordan, have the same memory of a time when they would be able to travel to Jerusalem and back without having a passport, without needing a passport. Can we imagine if the same thing happened in in, in Sydney, where, where a part of Sydney was just suddenly cordoned off and you can't go there anymore. I wouldn't accept that. And so for the same reason, I don't think anyone in the world should expect the Palestinians to accept that, which is why, I'll end on this note, my position on Israel-Palestine is exactly the same as the position of the first Israeli Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion. You know mm. what he said? What did he say? <laughs> I can't believe he said this. Because this is the thing, you have to appreciate the honesty uh, sometimes. He said... If I were an Arab leader, I would never make an agreement with Israel. It is normal. We have come and we have taken their country. Why should they accept that? If you look at this from, from a citizen's perspective, the, the first Israeli prime minister says this. How would you, as Jay, respond to this as a Palestinian mm. and as a so-called Israeli? Oh, if, if they said that, well, I just look at it as vindication. Um, well, you know, this person is, is saying, is just being brutally honest. That's the way I'd say it. What was his end? Um, I don't know about how, what happened to David Ben-Gurion. I believe he died peacefully. Back to the Syrian, Syria, yeah, Syrian conflict. Israel, yeah, it's all, it's all related. All these conflicts are very related. And Israel is at the heart of most of this, causing the, the sectarian violence. So looking at that sectarian violence that was, that was being pushed by these nations, how were they able to achieve a civil war between the, the Shia and the Sunni in nations like Syria? Yeah, yeah I, I see where that's coming from. Um, well, like I said before, when we talk about the Syrian Arab army, we're talking about a multi-sect army. Um, but the way they did that is is really insidious because it's something that they've been that, that they've been working on for a while. And I think to really give this question justice, if you don't mind, we should go 
um, we should go into the into the invasion of Iraq. Definitely. Let's let's make that the starting point. So the United States invades Iraq. Uh, they were expecting to be able to topple Saddam Hussein, who whatever you may think of him was not an American puppet. I mean, he collaborated with the United States. So, well, the United States helped him against Iran. That's like one way of putting it. But putting all of that aside, I mean, after 1991, the United States uh, was happy to have weakened Iraq. But in 2003, they decided to knock out his government. They thought that they'd be able to replace it with a compliant uh, government that would basically just uh, follow the follow the orders of Washington. And this is where the Iraqi resistance comes into it. Because uh, there's two, at the time, I remember in 2003, 2004, there was a lot of anger, particularly at, uh, at Sayyid Sistani, yep. Sayyid Ali Sistani, where they said, why isn't he calling for a jihad against the occupier? But in a sense, Sistani's uh, jihad was a lot more effective because he argued that a constitution for Iraq could not be imposed by the United States because that's what they tried to do. They yeah. tried to impose their own constitution. He said, this is illegitimate. A constitution can only be introduced by a freely elected Iraqi government. And so they marched, they protested. There's a, there's a great article written about this by Seth Ackerman, and I read it way back then in 2005, I think, and it's called Defeated by Democracy. And so the argument here is that the United States, they lost the war in Iraq when they had to make that political concession because they themselves invaded Iraq saying, we're going to bring democracy. You know, this tyrannical regime, we're going to get rid of it. We're going to give democracy to the people there. Now, I think the naive elements in the U.S. administration thought that the Democrats would be pro-U.S. They weren't. They were pro-Iran. And why wouldn't they be? I mean, Iran is their neighbor. And the outcome ultimately was was an Iraqi state that represented independent interests. So, for example, Nuri al-Maliki, whatever you think about him, he, when it came to um, uh, putting Iraq's energy resources up for investment bids, a lot of the, the contracts went to Russia and China. Now, that takes courage. Definitely. Okay? That takes a lot of courage. Your country is occupied by a country that has a history of assassinating leaders, right? Left, right, and center. They've just done it over and over again, launched coups to overthrow democratically elected governments over and over again. They're occupying your country, and when it comes to uh, signing contracts, you give it to the Russians and the Chinese. Yeah. That's courageous. It's it's not something. Was, the, was that, sorry to interrupt, was yep. that an early push for oil for US dollars? Well, the thing is, Iraq remained hooked on US dollars. I mean, there are some compromises here. You know, so Iraq got back on the US dollar after that. I mean, I think it's, I'm not too sure about that actually. So what I remember is that, um, actually now I've forgotten. This is something that I used to know that I've forgotten, so I'm not going to speak on it. But the other thing that I wanted to mention is that with the 2005 elections, because you mentioned, and I promise that I'm going to get to the question of sectarianism because that's how this started. There's Sunni versus Shia sectarianism. What happened immediately after the 2005 elections. Do you know, do you remember um, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi? Yes. Now, he basically issued a fatwa where he called for an all-out war against the Shia. Not just that, I think he, he made a video, which is like two hours long or something, where he went through all of the fatwas in, in the history of, of that region uh, against the Shia, calling either for their persecution, proclaiming takfir against them, or even calling for them to be killed. So one of the, you know, one of the famous, um, you know, sayings that comes out of this, which is really, which was really popularized 
during the Syrian conflict is that the the Shia are more disbelieving than the Christians and the Jews. So why why was that popularized? It was popularized because I think I think you read about this in the redirection. This is an article written by um, Seymour Hirsch. It came out in 2007 where he said there's basically a, a shift in the U.S. geo strategy when it comes to Iraq because the democracy that came to power is contrary to U.S. interests, as I mentioned. It's independent. It's too friendly to Iran. And so there has to be a plan B. What is that plan B? And this is where the balkanization of Iraq becomes a really important objective. And this is where I think Israeli geo strategy starts to come to the, to the assistance of the United States. So check this out. Iraq, this is, okay, I'll introduce this document, 1982. I think I already mentioned yes. it before. That's right, yeah. Um, I was thinking about the other document too. Iraq, rich in oil on the one hand and internally torn on the other, is guaranteed as a candidate for Israel's targets. Every kind of inter-Arab confrontation will assist us in the short run and will shorten the way to the more important aim of breaking up Iraq into denominations as in Syria and in Lebanon. This is what the Israelis are saying in 1982. You can't, you can't accuse them of not thinking ahead. So they basically started to use Sunni identity against the Shia identity, basically saying the Iranians are taking over Iraq, the Shia are taking over Iraq, all of the Sunnis in the world should come to Iraq to try and stem this tide. So essentially the United States was undermining the very government that they had, they were formerly in in a relationship with. So this is this is this tells you something about the the, the deep state and the shallow state. The shallow state is like holding press conferences with Nouri al Maliki and shaking hands with Iraqi government officials, but the deep state is working with the Saudis to undermine the Iraqi government. And so Saudi Arabia starts pumping money into groups like Al Qaeda and ISIS, and that's when the the wave of suicide bombings from 2006 to 2007 mm-hmm. happened in the context of the American uh, loss, political loss in the 2005 elections the year before. So this this document was the precursor for the the sectarian violence that was introduced by the US and Saudi Arabia. I think so. I mean, I don't know when it came out. I think it came out like in the 2000s. It was like pretty much held secret up until then. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it talks about uh, what Israel's long-term strategy is for the region because Israel wants to divide these states into into denominational sectarian states because then it makes their country look normal. Yeah, it's like well, we're the Jewish state. This is the Sunni state. This is the Druze state. This is the Alawite state, etc., etc., etc. So was this uh, notion of uh, drawing out these borders introduced to the Israelis or the the Jews because they weren't Israelis before by by the British? No, this is 1982, so this is like Israel doing it. No, so yeah. I'm saying this idea yeah. of drawing these borders, was this introduced to the Jews before they became a state? I don't know. I don't think there's any evidence for that. I mean, all we, I think it's just, it's just a step-by-step process. So if you, don't, if you don't have control of Palestine, then you're going to try and gain control and establish a state. Once you've done that, you realize there's hostility against you. There's three powerful Arab states, namely Iraq, Syria, and Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful at that time. Yeah. Um, then, unfortunately, after the, after the, the death of uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, Egypt made peace with Israel. By the way... Gamal Abdel Nasser is a very important argument why you should not smoke, <laughs> right? The guy was a pack-a-day smoker, mm. right? And had he lived another 20 years, who knows? He died at the age of 50. The Arab world could have been very different. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think that was – I think really this starts to appear in the 1980s where they think we have to have a strategy for balkanizing these other countries around us. So instead of just like fighting 
the Palestinians within our borders, let's, let's, take, let's make this an external war. They were pushing for a proxy war because yeah. they didn't want to fight in their own, or it wasn't their land, but the Palestinian land. I think it's evident. I mean, you know, I think after the, um, no, I do know about this, after the, uh, the 2006 war in Lebanon where Israel got, got a very rude shock from the Lebanese yeah. resistance, I mean that was that was a that was a shock to the entire world. Definitely. And the thing is, you know, if, if Hezbollah's status in the Muslim world, Sunni and Shia, was very high after that, a lot of people respected them because Israel used to think of itself as as just invincible. You know that they had defeated the Arabs in six days. Surely they were the most Hezbollah powerful army like in the world. Invading. Because what happened in 1982? They invaded South Lebanon. Back then, it wasn't controlled by Hezbollah. It was controlled by the PLO. Yep. And they made short work of them. It was not a difficult war for them at all. They, it was, okay, look, I mean, they, they, they lost some casualties. It's not like they, it was completely easy. Yep. But the fact is that within the space of a year, they, they occupied, I mean, less than a year, occupied uh, Lebanon and they had entered Beirut. Right, and they were like laying siege to it, which is what resulted in the Sabra Shatila massacre. Here's now in 2006, they try and enter the country, and all of a sudden they're facing resistance, and they have to move. They they have to leave, and so they have to. They ended up resorting resorting to like you know bombing, uh, you know, just Shia areas in general, you know, to just punish the population. But that was a rude shock to them, and and I think the the lesson that they drew was that the invasion of Iraq was fundamentally. Uh, counterproductive because w- w- think about what happened right before the invasion of Iraq Iraq was was hostile to Iran although their relationship yep. was like easing and it was becoming better right because after you go to war for that long you know you realize that you have a common enemy in terms of the United States the relationship was improving but nonetheless they weren't they weren't cooperating they were still hostile and so what happened is that a country that was historically a, a more I think it's more accurate to say a government in Iraq that was hostile to Iran is removed and you end up having a government that's pro-Iran, friendly to Iran, wants good relations with Iran. So this creates a land bridge. Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon. And so the Israelis blame this on why they lost. Because, you know, Hezbollah all of a sudden has all of these sophisticated means of defending their territory, defending Lebanese territory, not that they get credit. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so do you think that that counterproductive invasion of the US basically formed a strong resistance? Basically, it, not, by, not on purpose, but it formed this resistance from Iraq, Iran, Syria and Lebanon to exactly. combine all exactly. together against countries like Israel and the US. And to make matters even worse, in 2007, in the Persian Gulf, they discovered large quantities of, of natural gas. And so this was split between Qatar and Iran. Mm. So Iran wanted to build uh, what they call the Islamic pipeline, and this would traverse its own territory um, in the south, in the Paris region, um, into Iraq, then to Syria, and then it would end in, in Lebanon, either Lebanon or, or the Mediterranean coast that Syria has. And, and yeah, I mean, this is a huge competitive challenge because it solidifies the alliance of these countries because what happens is if you have countries that, that have a, a common interest in, in, in energy cooperation, they tend to become friends. Definitely. It's against their interest to become enemies. And so this is a huge threat. So now that these, uh, these nations have aligned together for, for a common interest and against a common enemy, why is it that Syria was chosen 
as the source of the war or the, the initial place of the war. To quote IDF military chief Gaddy Eisencott in 2019, we identified Syria as the weak link where we could cut the Shiite crescent. They thought 65 to 70% of the population is Sunni, Turkey is Sunni, they will uh, redirect their loyalties towards Erdogan and they won't be loyal to an Alawite president. Surely not. Mm. They were wrong. So would you would you label the war in Syria as a civil war as it's been described in mainstream media? It has civil war aspects to it insofar as yeah there are Syrians who have killed other Syrians but like I mentioned before even according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights 70% of the dead among the insurgency fighting the Syrian government are foreigners. Okay, sorry, 49 to 70% because you've got a minimal and a maximal estimate. Mm. I've got the data up. I'll, I'll actually I'll have to upload it because it's all on Excel. So there is a civil war element to it. I mean, there are certainly Syrians in Idlib and and Daraa in particular um, who took up arms against the government. But the problem is that you know this is such a closed perspective because it ignores the external pressures against Syria. Uh, because if you have external pressure, funding, um, and and uh, inflows of fighters to fight against any government, it's going to magnify the the ability. To, to overthrow the government and it's going to be externally fueled. Now the way that like a genuine revolution is supposed to happen it's, it's supposed to happen in the Yemeni way. Right? What happened in Yemen? It's like the army literally defected to the side of the revolution. Yeah. The army said these people represent the national interests. This government we don't trust because they're representing the interests of foreign powers. We're going to we're going to redirect our allegiances to them and that's what happened in Yemen. That's what they wanted to happen in Syria. They thought that the majority sunni army would simply defect to the side of the free syrian army under it was originally under riyad al-assad yeah. i don't know if you remember his it. father yeah and then salim idris took over after that um and that they would simply be loyal to these two guys and then the syrian national coalition which is based in turkey they would then fly in and become the new parliament and they change the flag change the constitution and allow the muslim brotherhood to contest elections that's what they expected to happen but it didn't happen that way So why is it that the the Syrian revolution is not considered a genuine revolution? I think it's a world war. I mean, <laughs> look at it this way. If you look at the first world war, you look at all the powers that are involved in it. All of those same powers are now involved in the Syrian conflict with the exception of Japan. You just mentioned those nations. So now uh, you mentioned earlier that the, 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 there was an alliance between the the Syrians, the Iranians, the Iraqis and the Lebanese. You also have Russia and China on their side yeah. because they have uh, common interest and a common enemy as well. What role did these external forces play as well as America and Britain and the Gulf nations? What what external what role did they play in this war? A defensive role. So you have to differentiate between uh Russia and Iran in this, in this instance because they're playing a defensive role. They're trying to prevent the overthrow of the Syrian government um by the forces that are attempting it who are instigating the conflict. whereas the united states is playing a destabilizing role they're playing an offensive role and that's the huge that's the big difference i think and uh, the the arab spring it was prior to the to the mm. let's say let's say war in syria very very close together so what role did the arab spring play in the syrian war or the conflict the arab spring created the 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 climate for the syrian war but the the general template for the arab spring was that you know muslim political parties 
would uh, would campaign for democratic elections and then they would come to power that way. That was the the model, the template. And the discourse that came with the Arab Spring was on the one hand, you had people saying, um, you know, isn't it good that Muslims are disproving Western myths about the Middle East, that the Middle East can't be democratic, you know, that Muslims can't be democratic. Uh, so that was like the, the climate of the Arab Spring. But there's a huge difference between the Arab Spring as it happened in Tunisia and Egypt and the Arab Spring or so-called Arab Spring as it happened in uh, Syria. So in Tunisia and Egypt, you'll notice that the Arab Spring was focused on the main urban centers. So Tunis, uh, Cairo, Alexandria, all the major centers had Arab Spring protests in their urban centers. And for it to, for the Arab Spring to spread from Tunisia to Egypt, it took like less than 48 hours. Yep. It was a very rapid kind of thing. Syria, it took about three or four months. And the Arab Spring protests did not happen in the major urban centers. There were some protests, but they were very small in mm. Damascus. And in Aleppo, they were almost non-existent. But to the extent that there was a so-called Arab Spring in Syria, it began on the border regions. It began mm. in Jordan, and it began in, um, in, uh, in Idlib in the very north. And so these are border regions that they border Jordan, which is a U.S. ally, and they also border, Tur border Turkey, which is part of NATO. Yeah. So this should tell you something, that there's something different about, about what's happening in Syria. And this was first brought to my attention by an Indian um, a political analyst named Prem Shankar Jha. And he wrote about this. And he said, yeah, like it, it's happening on the, on the borders. And the other thing he mentioned, which was interesting, and, and it's funny that this never gets mentioned, one of the early grievances of the, the protests in, in Dara'a was that uh, they wanted the government to get rid of uh, security laws that prevented people who lived on the border areas from easily selling their land. Okay. So previously, I, oh, actually, the, the law still exists. If you want to, if you live in on the border with Jordan and if you want to sell your land, you have to get clearances and permission from the Syrian government. This is very suspicious because... The Syrian government has genuine security reasons for why it doesn't want its borders to be controlled by anyone. Definitely. What if you sell it to someone who puts it in the names of different front companies and they're laundering money and they're creating cells and whatnot to then launch an uprising against the government? This is a very suspicious demand. So are you, are you suggesting that the, the so-called Arab Spring in Syria was driven by outside influences and not the legitimate Arab Spring that we saw in, for example, Egypt? Syria, even before this so-called Arab Spring, had a long history of reforms, you know, and th these, are, these are known in Syria as Bashar, Bashar al-Assad's liberalizing reforms. They're, they're appreciated by the, by, the, by the urban middle class. Um, they are not as appreciated by the rural populations. Um, but then again, there's multiple factors here, you know, so there's a global, there's a global economic crisis which affects everyone. Food prices go up. Um, but Syria is kind of insulated from that because it's got it's got some self-sufficiency in agriculture. But at the same time, Syria's got other economic problems like its oil um, uh, oil was like running out, you know. So they weren't able to pump out as much as they did in the past, and that hurt their budget bottom line. So there's all kinds of other reasons why people would would have genuine grievances against the government. But this is what imperialism does. Like even if you if you take a country like Syria, I think it's always worth mentioning that it punched above its weight in terms of its income level. So a country like Qatar has a per capita income of like $120,000 or something. It's really high. Yep. Um, 
Syria, before the war, had a per capita income measured in US dollars at like three or $4,000. It's not much. Right. But in terms of life expectancy, it was pretty much on par with Qatar. Mm. And 90% of the pharmaceuticals in Syria were domestically produced. This is a very self-sufficient country. Um, and like I said before, this is one of its achievements. And so this also explains why the same kind of mass protests that you saw in Egypt, you didn't see in Syria. But then what the, the way the media spins it is they say, well, if there's mass protests against the government, that's because the government's oppressive. If there's no protests against the government, that's also because the government's oppressive because mm. people are too scared to go out and protest. So you can't win. So the media tells us that the Syrian government responded to these peaceful protests with extreme force and this is what sparked the war. So what's your perspective on that? The first report of this happening comes from Reuters. This is either in March or April 2011. And they reported that 37 civilians had been gunned down by security forces. There's a problem with this. Even in their, even in their own article, they only mentioned, um, later on they mentioned like, you know, 13 people had been taken to the hospital and these were the civilians that had been treated. Well, what about the others, right? There's another like um, the rest of that number. Well, later on we found out through the great reporting of uh, Sharmin Narwani, shout out to you, that uh, 24 of that 37 were actually Syrian government soldiers. So the majority of people who were killed in that particular incident were Syrian government soldiers. So what happens in a, in a typical, like, let's say, when these like early uh, um, uh, confrontations happened, uh, what would happen is, let's say like 30 people died, yep. right? They would say something like, uh, you know, uh, 30, sorry, 15 civilians have been killed and 15 government soldiers have been killed. Now, there's a problem with that. Who killed the government soldiers, mm. right? Was it the, the civilians, civilians that killed them? Or other right? government soldiers? Yeah, so, so here's, here's where you get to the, the, the part of it that's actually there's some truth to, to the claims that, that civilians were making that they were being targeted by the government. Snipers on the rooftops, mm. right? So there's, there's video footage of this, right, where they show plain, uh, uh, plain clothes people standing on the tops of the rooftops, basically just sniping at civilians. And then what would happen is that these, uh, these, these martyrs, right, would then be, be the rallying call at Friday prayer, and then this would generate more publicity. And then this would, like, happen. This happened on a few occasions. Now, nobody knows who they were. Like, to this day, we don't know. Now, obviously, the people who oppose the Syrian government are going to say, oh, the, the Syrian government did this, but why would they do this? Mm. You know, like the, the narrative, unfortunately, up until 20, mid-2012 was that the Syrian government is just murdering peaceful protesters. There was no acknowledgement by all of the, the, the talking heads and the political analysts that supported the overthrow of the Syrian state that there was actually an armed insurgency waging war against the government. That armed insurgency began on the 17th of March, 2011, right? When around 11 people were killed and, oh man, I've forgotten the, I've forgotten the figures because it was so long ago. I was so focused on Israel, but basically, yeah, I'll, I'll find it. I'll find it for you. But basically police were killed along with civilians, okay. right? Doesn't, the number doesn't matter. Police were killed along with civilians, right? And this suggests that there was, there was, there was an armed war against the state brewing from March, 2011. This war against the state, was it politically fueled or was it fueled again by outside interests? There is a political element to it, which is that the Muslim Brotherhood is banned in Syria. So it's, it's illegal. Um, and so naturally, yeah, if you have Islamic politics that are of the Muslim Brotherhood variety and, and you believe that it's your democratic right, then you should be raising that as a demand. 
But what's surprising is that it was never raised as a demand. The only demand was that the Syrian government should leave office. So on the one hand, they're saying we want democracy, but on the other hand, they're saying that the entire Syrian state apparatus should surrender to them. Surrender to who exactly? Uh, a bunch of unelected people in Turkey mm. is basically what this, does that sound democratic to you? Of course, then they'd say, well, we'd have a transitional government, we'd draft a new constitution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is if Syria doesn't fall into another civil war after the Syrian government's overthrown. That's usually what happened. That's yeah. what happened in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, from throughout the 1980s, as you know, there was a Saudi CIA Pakistani backed uh, attempt to overthrow the government. They were ultimately successful in 1992. It resulted in a civil war that, result, that, that resulted in the complete destruction of Kabul, the capital city. And so that's if there was an if it was possible for us to look into an alternate timeline where the Syrian government actually did collapse, that's probably what would have happened. What is it that allowed the Syrian government to remain and not not be toppled? What what were their strengths against these insurgents, the powers on the outside, and everything else think, that was going on with them? I think it's the fact that the Syrian government, the way that it ran its economy, it focused on self sufficiency. It was never it was never near. It was never anywhere near as neoliberal as as the other Arab countries, particularly Egypt. Egypt relied on on imports like uh, was heavily import dependent. So when the global food crisis happened after the global financial crisis, Egypt was hit pretty hard by that. So yeah, I think self sufficiency makes a, makes a huge difference. So was that self sufficiency a defining factor in the U.S. and Israel and those other Gulf nations getting involved in the in the conflict? I think so because I think they see they see Syria as a hard state because they, you can't be a resistant state and also be a liberal democracy at the same time because if you believe that the, the existence of your state is threatened by a, an aggressive colonizing entity like Israel and by the United States, by Turkey, which is the former, former colonial power before yeah. France, and also by the Gulf powers – um, because you know, in 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 the history of the during the Cold War, the the main conflict within the Arab world was between republics and monarchies, and Syria was a very proud republic. Yep. So if you if you believe that's your neighbourhood, it's very difficult to become a you know a liberal democracy yep. and be completely open when you have so much external pressure against you. And I think Syrians understand that. So you have a kind of contradiction within Syrian society. The people that care about corruption don't really care about democracy and the people who care about democracy don't really care, yeah, about, corruption. Don't care about corruption because if you if you believe that the fundamental problem with your country is that there's too much corruption you're going to want more power in at the executive level because imagine a hierarchy in a society where you've got a high a, med- a middle and a low high is like you know the top branches of government the top brass the military the the top business leaders whatever the middle is you know the middle class whatever and then you've got like the low which is the working class and the peasantry then um, the way that like a, a, a one-party state or like a or, or, a or an ideologically partisan state with like a vanguard party like the Ba'ath Party, the way that it, that it, that it, that it's supposed to function is that the high is supposed to collaborate with the low to keep the middle in check, which is where all the corruption is. That's the way it's supposed to function, and so people don't get these dynamics. You know, you can't just cleanly divide the world into democracies and dictatorships, it doesn't work that way. The world is complicated, right? So, yeah, I mean, the people who want democracy, on the other hand, I mean, I can understand where they're coming from as well because they, well, understand purely in the sense that, like, you know, I can, I can, I realise where their class interests lie because uh, 
they, if you look at like what they were arguing for, uh, you know, they they wanted uh, you know Syria to become even more neoliberal than what it is today. So, what hand do the the nations surrounding Syria have in this? So, the the so called alliance between Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and Iran. What hand does do the other three nations have in this conflict? Um, Iraq and Syria have been fighting more or less the same conflict. I mean, Iraq got dragged into it in 2013 when there was a large prison break and ISIS uh, came to the scene in Mosul and declared that to be their de facto capital. Um, So, yeah, Iraq has been fighting on one front with uh, the Iraqi militias in particular doing a lot of the fighting because, you know, the Iraqi army was, was not reliable. That's what happened because when Islamic State came onto the scene in in those in the western parts of Iraq, the Sunni parts of Iraq, I mean there's no other way of putting it. Um, then yeah, the Iraqi army was 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 not willing to take them on. And so the the task of defending the government fell to the Iraqi militias, the, militias, the Shia yeah. militias. By the way, I mean there's Sunnis that are, that have fought with Hajj al Shabi as well. It's so the, like the militias in, in Iraq, especially Hajj al Shabi, yeah. it comprises of Majority Shia, yeah. but it also includes a lot of Sunnis, uh, Christians as well, and uh, Yazidis, or That's as, right, as I mentioned, as Yazidis. So when they when they went to fight in Mosul, most of the frontliners were Yazidis. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the big differences here is that there's a huge strategic difference between the way that groups like Al Qaeda and Islamic State see themselves functioning and the way that Shia groups function. Shia groups are happy to work within the parameters of the Arab nationalist Republican state. And so, I mean, so for example, Sistani, did he demand a theocracy? Did he demand Vilayat al-Faqih? No, he didn't. Mm. He said, we want a republican, democratic system of governance. And that's uh, that's ultimately what happened. So similarly in Hezbollah, is, has, did Hezbollah impose Vilayat al-Faqih? No. They're working with the with the system. I mean, there's a lot of anger at them for like working you know, too closely and not being bold enough to assert their own independent political agenda. Um uh, so yeah, I mean that's that's like a huge difference, I think. Whereas with the Al Qaeda and Islamic State groups, they see themselves, they see the entire Arab nationalist Republican project as being almost like almost un-Islamic mm-hmm. and, and dirty and disgusting. You have to get rid of it and you have to replace it either with an emirate or a caliphate. Yeah. Was the introduction of ISIS and Al Qaeda into Iraq and Syria was that the Almost like Hail Mary from the outside powers. Yeah, because I think what happened is that uh, initially they relied on, they tried to rely on defectors from the Syrian army, but the defectors, like I think they numbered, this is according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights again. Like the reason I quote this is because Tim Anderson, um, he makes this argument that uh, it's always good to use admissions against interest. Yeah. Because it's against the interests of the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights to tell you that there were only 2,000 defectors from the Syrian Arab army. Definitely. Very small. They have an interest in inflating the number, but they don't. They say 2,000. So that's what they did. They So, okay, then you have like the Free Syrian Army and the problem with them is that there was a lot of corruption. Like the thing is every – there was a period when every month there was a, a new bunch of groups. If you look at the list of groups – that are Free Syrian Army Brigades or even other Islamic brigades, there's like 20, 30, 40, 50 of them, right? And the reason I think for this is because of the the suppliers of arms. So, you know, the Free Syrian Army ended up becoming middlemen 
in the supplying of arms because okay. what would you rather be? I mean, would you rather risk your life on the front line against the Syrian army? They've got armor, artillery, air power. Uh, or would you rather be a middleman, you know, who, who, who gets the, the weapons from, from Turkey and then, and then gives it to people who are willing to fight? Yeah. Who is willing to fight? Who's actually ideologically committed? Jabhat al-Nusra. Mm. Jabhat al-Nusra. I mean, this is the thing. The, the, the funniest thing about the Syrian conflict is that this group is referred to as the moderate rebels. Okay. Right, so uh, this is something that James Clapper, he was the head of the CIA, he said this. He said that any group that is an Islamic state, we're going to call the moderate rebels. So that includes Jabhat al-Nusra. But what is Jabhat al-Nusra? Today, it's known as Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which used to be known as Jabhat Fatih al-Sham, which used to be known as Jabhat al-Nusra. And its leader, um, uh, uh, Abu Muhammad al-Jolani, he was sent to Syria uh, by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Okay. Because they were a member of the same organization. Yep. It used to be known as the Islamic State of Iraq. And then it became Islamic State of Iraq mm-hmm. and Syria mm-hmm. because there was a split between the two. And this is a huge split. I mean, we don't really recognize these splits because we look at it from the perspective of the Syrian government and the Syrian people. But the split was because ISIS says that we can declare a caliphate now, whereas Jabhat al-Nusra said we can only even think about declaring a caliphate once we've overthrown the, the pre-existing government. That's what the split was over. Basically, those insurgents or the, the little militias that were fighting, like the FSA, Jabhat yeah. al-Nusra, ISIS, and all their other militias that, that formed out of that, were they funded from the, uh, from the militias or from, from the outside as well? Because it would make no sense for the Syria to fund themselves, uh, against themselves. Well, this is one of the claims that started to emerge, and you started to see it when Islamic State came onto the scene. So Islamic State um, split from Jabhat al-Nusra in April 2013. Now, around that time, um, what you started to notice was that a lot of, let's say, let's, let's now divide the, the, the forces waging war against the Syrian state into two camps. Islamic State, and uh, let's just call them ironically the moderate rebels, the moderate that's rebels. the label that's been given to them. But I think it's more accurate to call them Jabhat al-Nusra and the Free Syrian Army. But let's just call them moderate because it's funny. Um, it also because it ties it to the to the to the CIA's yeah. propaganda, right? So what happened is that the moderates they started accusing the Syrian government of supporting ISIS because it makes sense. They've had a split, right? Jabhat al-Nusra has split from ISIS. They used to be the same organization, yeah. and now the moderates are basically saying that ISIS is the responsible is the responsibility of the Syrian government. And the argument that they started to promote to the Western media is that the Syrian government released prisoners um, who then swelled the ranks of Islamic State. There's a problem with this. If you look at the, 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 the names of the prisoners, like the people for whom we have names, right? Because obviously there were prison releases back in 2011 because that's <coughs> what the people who were against the Syrian government were demanding. Yep. Everyone who was out there in Sydney, whatever, protesting against the Syrian government, they were saying the Syrian government should release political prisoners, you know, like, and the, the imagination that we have is that, okay, maybe they're like the Amnesty International of Syria, these poor oppressed. No, the, the, the people who were released by the Syrian government include Zahran Alush and Hassan Aboud. And these two ended up being in charge of Ahrar al-Sham, sorry, Jaysh al-Islam and Ahrar al-Sham respectively. And the, the reason I mention this is because these are moderate, uh, these are the so-called moderate brigades. 
So I, I did a count, like I, I posted this somewhere else as well. Like I counted about seven people who became prominent figures among the insurgency uh, who certainly were released by the Syrian government. And I think the people in Syria consider that to be a huge mistake in hindsight. They mm -hmm. thought if you make this concession, they're going to calm down, whatever, right? They weren't expecting this level of, uh, of opposition. I mean, this level of you know military opposition rather, not really opposition. But so, so that's what happened. I mean, they... Um, yeah, like of the seven people who, who we know who became prominent names among the insurgency, the majority of them are actually part of the moderate rebel camp, right? So this argument that the Syrian government is releasing people who then became Islamic State in order to make the revolution look bad, which is basically the argument that they were making. Yeah. Like we were making the argument back in 20, 2012, 2013, that, you know, from the very beginning, the forces waging war against the Syrian state were, were um, you know, Wahhabi extremists. And people were saying, no, you're, you're being Orientalist, you're being Islamophobic, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're, um, you're hearing people screaming Allahu Akbar and thinking that they're going to kill everyone yeah. because you have a, uh, because, you, you know, you're like George Bush and you hate Muslims, something stupid like that, right? But then we ended up being vindicated. And when we were vindicated, there had to be an excuse. And the excuse was that the Syrian government released these people to make, this, to, to make the revolution look bad and to discredit the so-called revolution. So what did the FSA and Jabhat al-Nusra seek to gain by opposing the ideology of ISIS and having their own view of a caliphate? It's purely about the, um, the, the power relations and control over oil resources because Jabhat al-Nusra in, in northern Syria, the, the parts of Syria that are now controlled by the YPG and occupied by the United States, they, uh, they took over all of Syria's oil resources and they were making a lot of money. Mm. And they were selling the oil via Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, they were selling it to Turkey. So Bilal Erdogan, the son of uh, the current president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, was directly involved in selling this, uh, was buying, he was buying oil that was stolen from, stolen by ISIS. And a lot of this oil, actually, a lot of, the, a lot of it actually ended up uh, being bought by Israel as well. There's an article in Zero Hedge about that called Raqqa's Rockefellers. You should check that out. Definitely. So this is a way of kind of, uh, of, of uh, this, is, this is how ISIS funded itself. And so because it had this gigantic independent source of revenue, it basically said to all of the other militias fighting the Syrian government, you should now subordinate yourself to us and give bayah to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And then Raqqa became the de facto capital of Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. So um, the nations of Israel and uh and the US assisting the funding of countries like uh, assisting the funding of the militias of ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra was that to push their their influence on the Syrian uh, Syrian government yeah i mean if you look at uh, the way it happened i think is is that the in Turkey and Jordan, they set up training camps and it was open for people from all over the world who wanted to fight the Syrian government you name it, you know, like Eskimos who convert to Wahhabism can come and fight the Syrian mm. government, no problems. Because, you know, by the way, just like to make a side point, this is one of the kind of weaknesses of, uh, of Syria, which is that it has such a prominent place in Islamic history because right. it's the capital of the great Umayyad Empire, yeah. right, which is one of the world's largest empires. The Levant, yeah. Which means that if you have, when you have like, you know, Muslims, particularly Sunnis from all over the world who who – they have a sense of entitlement that they have a right to, 
to 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 have a say over what happens in so, Syria. So essentially, the same reasoning of Israel going into Palestine. Actually, that's a very good comparison. I have thought about that before. Yeah, I don't I don't see any difference between a British Pakistani going from from London to Syria, a country in which they have no ancestral connection, and saying, yeah, like, you know, this belongs to me because I belong to an ideology, which is basically a bunch of stuff in your head, Mm. because my ideology says that this belongs to the Muslims. It's exactly the same as the Zionist justification for the the existence of So could that have been a reason for the the support of the Israelis, As as in using that as propaganda? Yeah, I certainly think so. I mean, the the Israelis don't publicly they don't publicly admit any. No, definitely. And they don't get accused of it either, right? But think about the evidence that we have. I mean, from 2013 onwards, Israel has been knocking out Syria's anti-aircraft systems, and this just continued and continued. Then it ramped up to to fever pitch in 2018. They launched like 2,000 airstrikes, not just against the Syrian Arab army, um, but against uh, Hezbollah, against Iran. Uh, well, I mean, originally they were targeting Hezbollah and Iran. Then they started to target the Syrian Arab army as well. Um, and the thing is, they they were trying to knock out Syria's ability to defend its own airspace. And then once you do that, then the Israeli planes can fly all yeah, over the place. And then just do what Before they want. Before 2011, was Israel flying over Lebanon all the time? No, no I mean, not they at all. Weren't. I mean, it's something that's been made possible because because the stability of Syria has been weakened. Syria has 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 so much on its plate that Lebanon can't defend its air can't defend its airspace and the Lebanese army refuses to use, I don't know if they have anti-aircraft uh, defences or not. But, I mean, that's one thing. The other thing is that in 2016, Syrian Arab army released photos showing Israeli markings in Hebrew on ammunition boxes. Yep. Um, we have photos of Benjamin Netanyahu shaking hands with soldiers who were injured fighting against the Syrian government. Now, who does Israel think they're helping in Syria? When they're, when they're helping people who are fighting the Syrian government, who do they think they are? According to Avigdor Lieberman, who's uh, Israel's defense minister, this is back in July 2017, he said, the rebels are not our friends, they are all versions of Al-Qaeda. He said that. So the Israelis know who they're supporting. So essentially they're admitting their support for these these militia groups. Precisely, to break the Shiite crescent. So now Israel's hand in Syria is very prominent. Yeah, It's very clear and very obvious. Are they and countries like the the US and the Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and and the Emirates, are they looking to knock Syria out of the picture and then just basically have have somewhere to establish so that they have a free free range at yeah, think, countries think, like Iraq, Iran? And I mean, if you if you go back to the Oded Yunnan plan, they specifically talk about the Kurds about using about balkanizing Syria and Iraq to make way for for Kurdish entities. So in many ways, if you, look at, um, if you look at the US intervention against Islamic State, the way that a lot of the, a lot of the people who support the overthrow of the Syrian government would present that, um, including a lot of Sunnis, would be to say that uh, this proves that uh, the United States is not interested in fighting Assad because they, instead of fighting the Assad government, you know, they're launching airstrikes against Islamic State. Okay, but look at the geography. And this is what they never do. The purpose of the U.S. Uh, aerial war against Islamic State was to was on behalf of the Kurds, okay, right? Because the Kurds, um, they they had a de facto agreement with the Syrian government um, after 2013 because they had a common interest, which is that 
The Kurds have an interest in preventing the borders from being infiltrated by foreign fighters who are going to fight against the Syrian government because they know they're backed by Turkey and the Kurds don't like Turkey. That's right. And historically, the Syrian government supported the PKK. They supported the PKK from 1980 all the way through to 1998. In fact, the PKK was headquartered in Damascus. Abdullah Ocalan lived in Damascus. And so if you listen to Zahran Alush, for example, like his uh, invectives against the PKK and against the YPG are quite clear. He says the PKK was created by Hafez al-Assad. You know, that's a direct yeah. quote from Zahran Alush. He was killed in 2015, by the way, but before that. By the way, he's also uh, responsible for, uh, for throwing uh, civilians in cages and parading them around and using them as human shields. And he's also called for Syria to be cleansed of the Rafida. So well, these are the moderate forces in Syria. In many ways, their rhetoric is no different from Islamic State. Not but at all. So. To move to Islamic State and, uh, and, and the U.S. intervention against them. The U.S. was basically uh, <clears throat> using what I call cattle prod bombing. Yep. So they're basically saying to Islamic State, if you fight against the Kurds, we're going to fight you. Because, you know... It's like, it's like, for example, bullies in, in high school. You yeah. know? It's like, you know, if you pick on my little brother, I'm going to fight you. Yeah. you know? So that's what the, the Americans said to the, effectively, were, were sending that message to, the, to Islamic State, saying, if you fight the Kurds, we're going to fight you. So they, so they pushed back Islamic State, but then what did Islamic State do? They decided to direct all of their aggression against the Syrian government. So in the year that the, in the first year of the U.S. intervention, so the U.S. intervened in September 2014, from September 2014 to September 2015, the Syrian government lost territory, which is what provoked the Russian intervention. Okay. So the Russian intervention was because, because the Syrian government was losing all of this territory to Islamic State. They, they weren't that far from Damascus. That's when the Russians intervened. Okay, so the, so the, the American uh, bombing, was that a diversion to divert ISIS back into Syria and fight, fight in there? Don't worry about these guys. Fight in there. Yeah, fight the Syrian Push government. our agenda exactly. yeah. and leave these guys alone because we like them. Yeah, exactly. So they played Islamic State. So before, before 2014, which is when a lot of you know, socialists, anarchists and leftists, liberals, whatever, that's when they discovered that Kurds even existed. You know, yeah. It became a cause celebrate. It's like, oh, the Kurds, you know, the dancing feminist, uh, eco-friendly, you know, whatever, like democratic socialists, whatever, right? Like they read Murray Bookchin, who's this American anarchist. Um, but before that, what was happening is that, you know, when Syria controlled those territories that had the oil, they were sanctioned by the European Union. Like within a month of Islamic State taking control of those oil resources, the sanctions on no, Syria lifted. lifted, right? Thereby allowing ISIS to fund itself via the, 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 the theft the, and trade of Syria's natural resources. So what, what strategic, strategic objectives were they trying to achieve? Nations like the, the European nations and the US and Israel by pushing this agenda? Before the Arab Spring... George Friedman, he's the, the founder of Stratfor, it's a strategic force. It's been referred to as a kind of shadow CIA, so they echo the opinions of intelligence agencies. And he said the, the strategy of the United States should be one of destabilizing Eurasia. So I think it's just, they want to create failed states, especially in the Arab world. It would make Israel a lot more, um, it's like killing two birds with one stone. It's a way of mitigating the, the, the problem of, of declining US hegemony. And also it helps Israel in the process. So you mentioned the intervention of Russia yeah. later on. So, and people say that there are multiple imperialist powers. Yeah. For example, Russia and Iran. How would you respond to that? 
Russia and Iran have played a defensive role, whereas the United States has played an offensive destabilizing role. But let's look at the word imperialism. Where does it come from? So this is a part of my PhD. The word imperialism, as it's popularized, because it's really the Marxists that popularize the, the term imperialism, comes from Lenin. Um, uh, but Lenin got his concept of imperialism from John Hobson, by the way. So I'm not ignorant about that, but let's just talk about Lenin. He was talking about the World War I situation in which there were multiple empires. You had you know, Britain, France, Russia. You had Turkey. Germany on the other, on the other side. Uh, alongside Turkey, which is the Ottoman Empire, as well as the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So you had multiple, uh, Japan as well, you had multiple empires, and they were all fighting each other for the right to conquer and colonize different parts of the world. Now, that's it's in that context that the, the idea of inter-imperialist war makes sense. In that context, it makes sense. Yeah, there's multiple imperialist powers, and there's really no difference between you know, Germany and Britain, because they both want to exploit and subjugate other parts of the world. Like if Germany got control over India, they would just continue doing what the British were doing. So that is inter-imperialist conflict. But the thing is, Lenin came up with the concept of imperialism in order to capture the geopolitical realities of his time. Now, the problem is that a lot of Marxists have not tried to capture the geopolitical realities as they unfolded after the Second World War, because the world changed drastically after the Second World War. What happened? I mean, the if you look at the Soviet Union, one of the untold stories of the Soviet Union, one of the, ins the inspiring histories about the Soviet Union is the role that it played in undermining colonialism. This is a huge difference between the Soviet Union and the other imperial So can powers. you expand on that? Though? I will. I'm happy to expand on it. So after the Bolshevik Revolution, the Soviet Union made it a part of their state ideology that they supported national liberation struggles against colonial rule. One-sixth of the world's population in India, which is the country I was born in, was living under British imperial rule. That's right. Okay? Um, large swathes of Africa were under European colonial rule. The French, the Belgians were the worst, right? They were the absolute worst. China, all of its ports were occupied uh, by by eight European powers, eight European powers plus Japan as well, um, and so this was the, the the geopolitical situation that we're talking about. Now the Bolsheviks they represented, in my opinion, a defection in the sense that they weren't like the other empires because the Soviet Union is also in also inherits the the, the history of the Russian Empire, but it was also very different from the Russian Empire because the Russian Empire tried to russify the populations that they had conquered. Whereas the Soviet Union tried to create a multinational framework to the point where when the Soviet Union was dissolved in 19, uh, 1991, they, they had a vote where they said, where they put it to all of the different republics, you know, do you want to keep the, the union um, as like a geopolitical entity? And it was the nations that were historically conquered by the Russian Empire that voted in the highest numbers to keep the Soviet Union because they wow. benefited for the first time. They were getting investment, you know, the, the living standards. There was an evening in the past, the Russian Empire benefited the Russians at the expense of everyone else. And just exploited those nations. Yeah. yeah, and then what the Soviet Union did was they transferred capital from the, the rich areas to the poor areas. So there was an evening between European Russia and Asiatic Russia. You know, Stalin himself was not Russian, he was Georgian. But anyway, uh, this is getting, uh, uh, I'm digressing. But, you know, on the, on the topic of Stalin, there's one quote where he says, you know, 
Bolshevism came to tear down the wall between black and white, wow. between Europe and Asia. And this alarmed the European powers. In fact, there's before the Nazis, there was, a, there was an American thinker, his name's Lothrop Stoddard, and he wrote about why, he, he basically explained why the United States should be anti-communist. He said, the communists are inciting um, uh, the, the inferior races, you know, the brown, the black, the yellow, in rebellion against the, the, the superior the white. white race. And that's why they hated the Soviet Union. Well, that's why I like the Soviet Union, uh, right? Definitely. Even if, even if you're not communist, even if you dislike Marxism, even if you, even if you don't but like the, Stalin or Lenin. Their ideologies, yeah. they, they support the exactly. poor man, exactly. essentially. Look at what happened in the Middle East, right? All of the republics, right? Who armed them, right? Syria, Iraq, Egypt, Algeria, Libya. All of these countries were armed by the Soviet Union. South Yemen, North Yemen, Soviet Union supported them. Nobody else was willing, willing to give them weapons. Like the United States was not willing to give North Yemen weapons. The Soviet Union played the role of a counter hegemon. These countries were never, it was never in the plans of, of the United States for these countries, these Arab republics to be independent. The monarchies could be independent because they had lots of oil. So lots they could of money be given and lots of oil. Rain, right? yep. But the Arab republics, they were able to assert their independence because of Soviet support. So this changes the entire dynamic of what imperialism is. After the Second World War, to put to 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 express it succinctly, there were three camps. You had the the former empires. You had a, you had a U.S.-led alliance of former empires, and their geo strategy was was determined to maintain the economic advantages that were won by all of the former European colonial powers against the nations that they had formerly subjugated. That was their geostrategy, and it continues to this day. Um, then you had a country like the Soviet Union, which represents a defection. This is a, a former empire that first decolonizes internally. Obviously, it's not perfect, you know, et cetera. You have yep. to make those allowances. Um, it decolonizes internally, and then it defects its geopolitical loyalties to the third world, to the post-colonial world that was previously exploited. So India, for example, my dad is is he's not a communist, but he appreciates the fact that the Soviet Soviet technical assistance played a huge role in, in helping India industrialize. So is that is is this ideology still implemented by the Russians today in conflicts like thing. Syria? Exactly. Even even though Russia's ideology is radically different, like there's you know Putin does not like Lenin. You know, Putin considers Lenin to be a traitor. Yep. So he's, I'm, not, I'm not saying he's a communist or anything like that. But the thing is, the modern Russian state has inherited the geostrategy of, of the Soviet Union, which is to support the republics. And then, you know, they're going to continue doing that. So they're, they're performing the same role, effectively, which is as a counter-hegemon. And what support is that, is that uh, showing in the, in the Syrian well, it's conflict? Mili it's military. I mean, people think that imperialism is basically any state that acts violently beyond its borders is by definition imperialist. Well, the problem is that you're, you're stripping away from the concept of imperialism the reality of national exploitation. So what does British imperialism, because before the United States, Britain was the hegemon for 100 right. years. What was the foundational, what was the financial basis for British hegemony? It was the fact that they had one-sixth of the world's population, India, subjugated. And from India, they were able to extract $45 trillion. That's how much, how much it's been estimated by. The United States, after Britain, did not have the same 
foundations for its currency hegemony because the United States was faced with a decolonizing world because all these post-colonial nations are being armed to the teeth by the Soviet Union. So the cost of reconquering them is much higher. You're going to have to pay in, in <laughs> because all of these people who previously had no weapons suddenly have modern tanks yep. because of the Soviet Union. This is a counter-hegemonic uh, force in, in world history. And so for that reason, the accusation that the Soviet Union is imperialist is so disingenuous. There's no, there's no value transfer that Russia has never exploited Syria. So what impact is that support showing in, in Syria? Uh, the impact is that, I mean, it's, it's, they've helped them win the war. Uh, effectively, it's hurt Russia a lot. Um, but then Russia also knows that if they, don't, if they don't do anything in the short term, then in the long term it's going to hurt them. So, for example, take Libya. Um, Russia did not do anything. Right? That was under Medvedev. He was president. It was his call. It wasn't Putin. They decided to sit back um, and, and Libya fell. And what happened? The entire <laughs> Soviet army like stockpiles of the libyan army ended up being transferred by the cia by mi6 this is written about by seymour hirsch by the way very respected journalist he wrote an article called red lines and rat lines and basically the the libyan army stockpiles were, were shipped to turkey where they were distributed amongst the free syrian army so the failure of russia impacted uh, to intervene them in, in libya actually made the problem worse in the context of syria what does that say about Russia's role now uh, in the in the long term of the Syrian conflict? I think it means that like Russia will uh, <clears throat> will have a permanent role there uh, because it doesn't it doesn't want to lose its position because if it if it if it had abandoned Syria it may have been able to keep its uh, its naval base who knows or it may have been kicked out because there's also competition between Turkey and Russia. Because these are two very old rivals, Turkey, Iran, and Russia. They go back, you know. Like, yep. think about the the Ottoman Safavid wars, for example, from the fifteen hundreds. Right. Think about the Russo-Turkic wars, Turkish wars, which happened in, which began in fifteen sixty six with, uh, I think it was uh, Ivan the Terrible. He yep. he invaded Astrakhan, which was previously you know Turkic. Um, I mean, so there was historic Russian aggression, you know, against areas. That's all true. So yeah, I mean, if you if you look at this history, I mean, there's there is there are competing rivalries that that aren't the United States. So even if the United States were to leave the scene, there would still be Turkey. And what's Turkey's interest? Now, a lot of the reason why you saw this huge upsurge in you know Sunni identity politics in Western countries is because of Turkey, uh, because Turkey started um, presenting itself as an alternative to Saudi Arabia. Because everyone hates Saudi Arabia, right. right? Like most Sunnis do not like Saudi Arabia. Like don't don't think that I think that, you know, there are Sunnis out there who are fawning over how great Saudi Arabia mm. is. Nobody likes that country. In 1979, Sunnis tried to overthrow the Saudi government, that's right? right? Yeah. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a regime that's completely despised. Turkey, however, has some historic uh, cred to it because Turkey is the, is the successor state to the former Ottoman Empire. So this idea of the Arab Spring being a kind of neo-Ottoman revival was a huge theme in the Arab Spring. It can't be denied because, you know, in many ways, what was World War I about from an Arab point of view? The Ottoman Empire had lost its credibility. The, the Arabs weren't willing to fight and die for the Ottoman Empire. Definitely. Basically, that's what happened. More Arabs were willing to take up arms against it. And so the Ottoman Empire lost its Arab territory. So that was the original Arab Spring. It was the rolling back of the Ottoman Empire. The Arab Spring of 2011 is the other way around. It's a it's an attempt by the by the by by Turkey to regain its uh, its 
its its former spheres of influence. But this is, I think, the the part that's a little bit contradictory, because Turkey and Qatar, say what you will about them, they had a um, a long term uh, plan for stability in these countries. The flag would change, the Muslim Brotherhood would come into power, it would become more Islamic. It wouldn't be very good for the Alawites. There would be foundational massacres for this state to be formed, you know. Yeah. So Alaw- Alawites and the Druze would cop it, you know. Um, Shiites would uh, – sorry, Christians, I mean, their their role in the state and their loyalty would be questioned. All of that stuff would happen, right? But the end goal for Qatar and Turkey was one of let's try and create a stable Muslim Brotherhood government. Let's try and, you know, create our own sphere of influence. Whereas the United States, Israel – um, they want pure destruction. Saudi Arabia as well, I believe, just wants pure destruction because they're the – of all the Gulf monarchies, Saudi Arabia is the one that's like just completely beholden to the United States. In Syria's current situation, is there an end to the US influence against the Syrian, Syrian government? And are the nations surrounding Syria and the nations supporting the Syrian government such as Iran and Lebanon – are they equipped to hold off this this wave of US influence and Israeli influence, Saudi influence, and restabilize the nation? The problem, the, the, the US influence has changed a little bit. So when Donald Trump came to power, I mean you may you may remember this, that his in his campaign speeches before he became president, he was actually he was actually pushing for isolationism. So he was saying, you know, the United States shouldn't be involved in these wars, and he was praising Russia's, um, you know, obliteration of Islamic State as well. But then, once he came to power, you know, the I think, yeah, I mean, it's you realize that that uh, that that U.S. geo strategy uh, can't be changed, even if the president wants to, and if the president wants to be reelected, then he has to he has to make some compromises. So, for example, in exchange for pursuing the trade war with China, I think he's continue to to enact pressure on Syria. So this year there was the Caesar sanctions, which were even more crippling sanctions on Syria, which is why the currency is depreciated. It's a good thing that Syria has self-sufficient agriculture. Yeah. But as for Lebanon, because you also mentioned, now now we're seeing this, uh, uh, like we've seen a kind of color revolution situation in Lebanon. Because if you look at Lebanon's financial problems, uh, a lot of it is is deeply structural. You know, so you have a country that has, you know, a peg of fifteen hundred and seven lira to the dollar, which is a which is a way of incentivizing investment. So you say to investors, if you, you if you come in, you can take your money out at the same rate. You're not going to face depreciation risk. Um, but the problem is that uh, that eventually it became a kind of Ponzi scheme. Lebanon needed to borrow money just to consume. So Lebanon ended up uh, adopting similar policies to the United States. The difference is that the United States has the dollar hegemony, not Lebanon. Yeah. Which means that um, that there's been a lot of capital flight, capital flight from Lebanon. It's been estimated at get this fifty billion dollars mm. over over the, the the two quarters. So from the last quarter of 2019, the first quarter of this year, fifty billion dollars left Lebanon, and most likely it ended up in the Anglo-American financial empire. And the reason why this is allowed to continue is because the United States. I mean, you know, Lebanon is so deeply fractured. I mean, it's uh, it's it's a country in which the, the fundamental questions of the civil war were never actually resolved. Yeah, they were only suppressed. The Lebanese civil war was about what is Lebanon a Western country, or, or is it an enclave that's pro-Western, or is it an Arab nation 
Um, that was basically what the question was, but that was never really resolved. Instead, you ended up with a compromise equilibrium. Swept under and the even, rug. I mean, you know, Hezbollah, if you can criticize them for anything, you can criticize them for being too nice. After the after the Israelis were forced to withdraw because of the resistance, um, what happened? I mean, a lot of people who had previously collaborated with Israel, not a, not a hair on their head was touched. Yeah, that's right. It was right. like <laughs> incredibly generous. I mean, I know that if communists were in charge of Lebanon, the Lebanese different. resistance, they'd probably be a bloodbath. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, this is the thing about, like, you know, your ideology. It's very forgiving. You know, so, and so anyway, to, to get back to the point, because of the fractured nation of the, uh, the nature of the, the Lebanese state, you have, for example, um, someone like Riyad Salameh, Mm. who's the governor of the, the, the central bank in Lebanon. And, you know, the U.S. ambassador to Lebanon basically said that it's a red line to, to challenge his authority wow. over the Lebanese central bank. Because he's the one who's basically opening the floodgates and allowing Lebanon's hard currency foreign exchange reserves to be, to be bled to go overseas. And so all you need to do there is impose some capital controls. Now, here's the thing. After the Beirut blasts, um, who was the fall guy? Uh, Hassan Diab, who was the Prime Minister, he resigned. Obviously, there was some pressure put on him. He Definitely. probably feared for his life. I don't know. I don't know the situation. We'll find out later. But the funny thing is that he was actually trying to mitigate the like Lebanon's economic problems because he wanted to restructure the debt so Lebanon didn't have to pay back so much. He could That's right. pay back in installments. And so the debt was to the IMF, so they got rid of him. And, but he was, like, not the problem. Yeah, he just took the fall. Yeah, he was not the problem. Like, the people who are the problem – are being covered up by this slogan in Lebanon, which is kulun yani kulun, yeah. which is they're all the same. So now, I mean, obviously, yes, there's corruption. You know, yes, you know, people like Gibran, uh, Gibran Basil, I believe is his name. Did that's his name, isn't uh, it? I think so. Foreign minister, yeah, Gibran Basil. That's right. Um, they have been implicated, you know, and he's from the Free Patriotic Movement. So there is corruption on, on both sides. There are accusations against against the Amanda. corruption is very evident. Yeah, but there is one political party in Lebanon. That is not corrupt. In one political party in Lebanon, it's also a militia, as you know, Hezbollah, uh, that openly says, you know, if you're going to have investigations into corruption, investigate us first. We're an open book. That's right. You know, I mean, obviously there's limits to that. I mean, you know, Michel Aoun, he came out and he said, look, you know, Hezbollah has never used its arms against political opponents inside Lebanon. It's never done that. But its political opponents have tried to undermine Hezbollah in, in ways that only benefit Israel. So can you imagine two years after the what was it? Two years after the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in two thousand and six, um, the, the 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 opposition in Lebanon they tried to shut down Hezbollah's internal communication system, and so for a very brief period, Hezbollah took over Beirut just to show, just to demonstrate their power, and they backed off, and that way they were able to save their their telecommunication system. You know, this is uh, yeah, then they're not a corrupt force. Is there is there influence? as powerful in Syria as it is or as it was in Lebanon in those in in the times of the invasion and afterwards I mean the influence is more the other way around I mean up until 2006 Hezbollah was spoken of as an Iranian Syrian proxy so that's how that's how they refer to it you know like I can I can quote to you you know from from the Israeli document in 1982 they talk about the nature of the Syrian regime you know, the Syrian-controlled Bekaa Valley in Lebanon has become, for terror, what the Silicon Valley has become for computers. Wow. <laughs> this is in 1982. So the Israelis in 1982 are thinking, okay, well, Hezbollah is just a militia. They're like the PLO. They're reliant on foreign donors, foreign support, etc. 
I, I think fundamentally they underestimated the amount of organic support that they had among the Lebanese population. I think that's a huge factor. And just to end, what stance have you taken in your PhD on the Syrian conflict? The stance that I'm taking is uh, is to say that, you know, these are world wars. You cannot understand these as civil wars. I mean, that's one of the criticisms that I that I had where, where um, you know, some of the people who were reviewing my work, they said, why don't you just focus on... Um, on one country, and I said, oh, I can't. You know, I've looked at the history of imperialism, and I've identified three major long wave cycles of hegemony, currency hegemony that have to be looked at and aren't. So, for example, the first cycle of currency hegemony was, um, and I'll get to Syria at the very end, but yep. you'll be you'll be interested to know how this begins. The Portuguese were the first European. Uh, colonial empire and that set off the modern chain of empires right before that european power goes back to the roman empire right so um you know you had a period when the roman empire was strong then you had a long period when when islam was the major hegemon and then the portuguese uh um they they were able to establish their supremacy because they found an alternate route to india around africa and so when they came to india they started competing with the arabs because the arabs they used to be the major traders, the Arabs and the Chinese. Yep. But then, you know, like um, the Chinese became reclusive after a while and they stopped sending out ships and they became more internally focused. But the Arabs um, were, were the major traders. Now, one of the major trading ports in the Indian Ocean was in Kerala, where I'm from. So one of the stories is that the Portuguese, they came to Kerala, and this gives you an idea of how poor Europe was and 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 nobody thought anything of Portugal. Like in Kerala, they didn't know who the Portuguese were. Right? They said, okay, we trade with the Arabs, we trade with the Persians, we know who they are, we have, long, we have a long history of trade and we get their religion, etc. Um, uh, but the Portuguese, we have no idea who they are. So when the Portuguese came to Kerala, um, they came with like, you know, some, some basic items with which to trade, like some cloth and you know, yep. some, some really cheap trinkets. And they got laughed out of the court, out of the king's court. This is the Zamorin of Calicut. This is the head of state in Kerala. Uh, because they said next time you know you want to impress the king, you should bring something like gold because that's what the Arabs bring. That gives you an idea of how poor Portugal was. So there were nothing state. Yeah, there were nothing state. But what they did was they started to use, they started to monopolize the the trading networks. They used naval power because they had advanced boats. So despite being poor in in other ways, you know they had advanced military technology, and they were willing to die. They would they were fanatics. They were willing to die because you know the you know poverty breeds fanaticism. That's Europe right. was a very poor place. Um, and so they were kind of like a Catholic ISIS. <laughs> so, for wow. example, they sunk a boat full of like 300, 500 pilgrims who are Muslims from Kerala, which is the part of India that I'm from. They were traveling to Mecca via boat. They sunk it and they killed the entire population. I'm oh, sorry, they killed the, the, the boat. Yep. Um, they killed the people on the boat, which terrified the population of Kerala. And then this is what like, you know, uh, led to the Portuguese establishing their naval empire. But the reason I mention is, this is because it then prompted the Ottomans who were the major hegemon over the Arabs in that in that time, to invade Yemen, right? Okay. And so from Kerala's point of view, Yemen's sovereignty became less important than than requiring Ottoman assistance against a common enemy, which is the Portuguese. Portuguese, yeah. Okay? And then on the other side of the world, the Spanish, they conquered the Americas and they plundered large quantities of gold and silver. And this is what created the conditions for the rise of Europe, 
all of this gold and silver, like it, it, it the, the, the numbers are astounding, you know, like Adam Smith talks about this as being one of the primary um, uh, stimulating factors behind the development of Northern Europe. So what happened is that Northern Europe historically did not matter. Northern Europe was the third world of Europe. Southern Europe was was where all the wealth is. You think about like all the, the, the classical empires, right? Greece, Rome, this is in Southern Europe, right? These are wogs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the wogs. Right? It's, they look more like you than they like yeah, Northern they look Europeans. Like Europeans right? yeah. I mean, you probably share a lot of genetic ancestry as well. Um, but then Northern Northern Europe was always poor. I mean, what did this? What did the Romans and the Greeks think about the Germans? They saw them as barbarians. Okay. In fact, the word barbarian comes from the Greek word varvaros, which is a reference to how they thought the Northern Europeans sounded when they spoke. Wow. Yeah. So this is what actually resulted in. Um, so what happened is that the Portuguese and the Spanish they came back with all of this gold, right? Because of the the trade networks that they had created and the plundering of the Americas and the taxation in the in, in Asia, which is the Portuguese contribution, and they started um, uh, um, uh, exporting this to Northern Europe. And in exchange, like um, you know, so Northern Europe started producing in exchange for Spanish and Portuguese gold and silver. Okay. This is what resulted in the the development of Northern Europe. And eventually, Northern Europe subjugated Southern Europe, Southern and this Europe. is the piece of Westphalia. And so the ideological um, uh, contest at that time was between Protestantism, which represents the, the North, and Catholicism, which represents the pre-hegemonic, pre-eminent uh, South, yep. right? Which is like a remnant of the Roman Empire, as you know, the Catholic Church, the Roman yep. Empire. So, so then from among the Northern European powers – Britain emerges as the, the, the leading hegemon in 1757 when they win their first battle on Indian soil, which is the Battle of Plassey, which results in them gradually taking over the entire Indian subcontinent. And from 1757 to 1947, India is plundered, 45 trillion. I mentioned that before. And 40 million Indians die in famines, right? This is a genocide. Yeah. Um, and so that was the foundation for British currency hegemony. But then the 20th century, the Soviet Union comes on the scene and starts arming all of the people that were previously they oppressed yep. by the empires. And this undermines the ability for the United States to fashion anything like the hegemony that the British had in the past. So the United States is a declining empire. That's the context of my thesis. And because they're in decline, this is where Syria and, and, and the Middle East comes into it. They have to destabilize the Arab world because it's a part of their geo strategy of destabilizing Eurasia in general. Well, <laughs> that's my PhD in a nutshell. Sounds like the the United States is basically just trying to save themselves from basically collapsing and being subjugated by every other nation. Yeah, well, they don't have to be subjugated. That's the thing. the The problem that the United States has is that um, you know its currency is used more as a measure of value rather than as a means of exchange, because people don't hold U.S. dollars primarily to buy U.S. goods. They use they hold U.S. dollars to buy goods from other countries, That's and other right. countries accept it because it's the hegemonic currency. So it's got the inertia of the past. But you see what's been happening over the past 10 years? I mean, back in 2015, Russia started accepting renminbi in exchange for oil. They've started the petro yuan. China says that they want to um, expand their debt markets so that foreigners can can um, can hold up to 15% of Chinese debt. So if you're a, an investor, would you rather lend to China or would you rather lend to the United States? China. Yeah, China's, China appears like they're good for it because they produce. They're a trade surplus nation, right? Uh, the the United States has been like a magnet for all of this foreign investment, but it's but it's basically fueled all of these speculative bubbles. 
Like what happened after the Asian financial crisis? Part of the reason that happened, by the way, is because like a few whales, like which is investment language, you know, yeah. like a handful of people with large amounts of money, they pull their money out of the, the Asian economies. Um, and then this led to a rapid depreciation of their currencies. And this is the experience of the entire third world. This is how U.S. currency hegemony continues to, to uphold the colonial relationship that was established against the third world, which is that the third world is constantly depreciating. Its currency is depreciating against the U.S. dollar. So, yeah, like when that money went back to the United States after leaving Asia during the 97 financial crisis, it, it, it pumped up the NASDAQ bubble, the, the tech bubble as they called it, and that collapsed in, in 99, 2000, I think it peaked in 2000. And then uh, they, they decided to get rid of the Glass-Steagall Act. And so that allowed mortgages to be securitized and onsold. Because the thing is, the US, US dollar hegemony has to give the rest of the world instruments to invest in. Because there's a demand for U.S. dollars, yeah. and the reason there's a demand for U.S. dollars is because instability leads to a demand for U.S. dollars, which is another incentive for destabilizing Eurasia. So this led to the the housing bubble, which collapsed in 2008, and then the United States since then has had to smash the debt ceiling twice. So the United States is now the biggest debtor in the world. And this is how imperialism functions. In the past, empires used to go into countries and basically take their money, take their gold, take their raw materials, and then use that to balance their trade deficits. And the debts would not show up on their show up in their name. But the United States can't really do that. Instead, they have to borrow. So imagine instead of a bully saying to you, give me your money, the the, the bully says, Can I borrow it? Can I borrow your money? And it's like it's like just it's like a drug addict, right? It, this drug addict, which is the U.S. financial system. The thing is, so many people in the U.S. the elites know this. Steve Bannon, like the people who are behind Trump, they know this is the case. Everyone in the United States knows it. Um, but it's 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 like drug addiction in the following sense: a drug addict comes to your house and says, "Look, you know, I need I need to borrow some money. Can you give it to me?" You're inclined to say no, but then you walk into the driveway, you realize that there's a tank. Yeah. And then you're like, <laughs> Yeah. Here you go. Yeah. And then, and then the guy says, oh, you know, if you don't give it to me, you know, like I'm, I'm afraid that, that your house is going to become very unstable. <laughs> so it's a, it's a form of blackmail in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a very enlightening chat. Jay, no thank you very much for jumping on again. Hopefully we'll have you again soon. Sure. Stimulate Your Mind is proudly presented to you by LOF Productions. For more of our podcast where we try to cover all the interesting topics happening all over the globe and also the personal stories of people right here in our own backyard. Subscribe to Stimulate Your Mind on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. See you guys in a little while.